Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 22nd, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Well, today, Ming Chen, law professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, who, along with their colleagues of the Colorado State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, is reporting some serious delays in the citizenship naturalization process. Attention, if you're Colorado, you have missed your opportunity to vote in the November 2020 elections. If you did not start your application for naturalization March of this year, for other states, if you have not applied, started by this very month, you also aren't able to participate. So we'll talk about those delays in, at great length in the first segment. My other guest will be Richard Alexander, technical electrical publisher for Pure Insight about the electricity infrastructure and those wild fires breaking out. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show, taking up our heady questions about what is happening to that citizenship queue forming the country round is my guest, Ming Chen. Everyone pull out the N-400 form and follow along. Ming Chen is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, where she's the faculty director of the Immigration and Citizenship Law Program and holds a joint appointment in Political Science and Ethnic Studies. Ming Chen brings an interdisciplinary perspective to the study of immigration, civil rights, and the administrative state. In the law school, she teaches a variety of law and social science courses, including immigration law, citizenship law, administrative law, legislation and regulation, law and politics, race in America, and law and social change. Her research examines the role of federal regulatory agencies in promoting the integration of immigrants and racial minorities into U.S. society. She also writes about the legitimacy of executive action in immigration law. We could have her on a multitude of segments. Ming Chen is co-editor for the Immigration Prof blog. Check out her work there. She's a member of the Scholar Strategy Network and the Colorado Advisory Council to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And that work is what we'll be talking about today. Prior to becoming an academic, Professor Chan clerked for the Honorable James R. Browning on the U.S. Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit in San Francisco, and worked for the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, National Asian Pacific American Legal Consortium, and the Brookings Institution. She's appeared on Denver Radio, KUNC, CBS Denver, Colorado Public Radio, and recently the Longmont Times Daily Camera. We are lucky to have her here on KUCI, as she once lived here and still has family in Irvine. Ming Chan earned her Bachelor's of Arts from Harvard, her JD, her law degree from New York University, and her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. She comes to us today from Boulder, Colorado, fitting us in before her meeting this week with Justice 
Elena Kagan. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Ming Chen. Thank you, Claudia, for having me. It's nice to be back in Irvine and at least virtually through the radio wave. Virtually and really covering it. This is a pursuit that demands our attention Difficult as that is, as crises after crises are developing daily. Let's start. We'll talk about the study. It's entitled Citizenship Delayed, Civil Rights and Voting Rights Implications of the Backlog in Citizenship and Naturalization Applications. So, Ming, could you tell us how it was launched at whose direction that started in February of this year? Who contributed, and including along with the dissenting reviews at the close of the report? So all of the sort of the initiators and the, all of the, the parties that were a part of this whole report. Sure. So the report that I authored for the Colorado State Advisory Committee um, was authored for the purpose of highlighting an issue for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in D.C. has 50 counterparts in each of the 50 states. And as a member of the Colorado body, um, I proposed to my fellow members that we take up an issue that had national significance, um, but that also had a great local impact, and that would directly relate to this issue of voting rights and civil rights by looking at the lives of immigrants. So it was a proposal that went to a bipartisan body of about 12 other individuals. The advisory committee is comprised of professors, attorneys, think tank members, community leaders, um, people from all over the spectrum. And as you mentioned, I am calling from Colorado, which is a very purple state. So to say that it's bipartisan does mean something. And I think the reason that I was able to get agreement from the group to study this is because the issue of whether or not people are able to naturalize um, to obtain citizenship and eventually be able to vote ultimately should not be a controversial issue. It shouldn't be something that depends on party preferences. It should be something uh, that people across the spectrum who believe in the principles of our democracy ought to get behind. And so I think that was one of the reasons um, I was able to persuade the group that we should study the issue. And then from that point, we spent a year studying the issue. That included a public hearing that was held here at the University of Colorado Law School that included 10 experts and a number of community members who came as audience members and participants in the community forum. And then we spent the next six months um, doing our independent research and compiling the findings for the purpose of a release by Citizenship Day um, in, in September of 2019. So let's just back to sort of civic government 101, or just to remind listeners and remind all of us like to take this sort of collective deep breath about the citizenship goals. What, I mean, those are really, really important. You said it's a nonpartisan, should be, process, but what, just, just to have you talk about what we get when we get citizens enrolled and naturalized. Right, so I think it's critical to remember that where immigrants are coming into this process, um, they've been in the country usually a decade or more before they even become eligible for the rights of citizenship. So that means that, you know, most individuals coming from outside the country spend an, a quite long time, depending what country they're coming from, right. for a visa to even become eligible. Then they spend usually at least five years waiting till they're eligible for a green card, and then another five years 
establishing continuous presence in the green card before they can put that N-400 form that you've mentioned in at the USCIS or the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. So these are individuals, like I said, who are parts of our communities who have been here for more than a decade. Um, For those who have green cards, they have some of the rights and benefits of U.S. citizens, but critically, they lack the right to vote. They also lack a number of civil rights relating to employment, um, certain jobs that only citizens can hold, including any job with the U.S. federal government, including work at the post office, but also um, eligibility if we're thinking about students on your campus, um, eligibility for federal financial aid, for research grants. Um, A number of public benefits are tied to citizenship. So the general processing trends, you map out to some extent that from 2004 to 2015 until now. Can you give us just a general sort of trend before we break down what this naturalization process is all about that you say needs more transparency and more data that we'll get into later? But generally, where are we trending right now? So the definition of a backlog is not just the number of applications that are waiting to be processed. The definition of a backlog specifically is the number of applications that are waiting longer than the amount of time that Congress and the agency have defined as acceptable, which is six months in this case. Wow. Because already now, when I just checked out on the website for the USCIS, that the LA Center processing time is estimated, it's on their website, between 10.5 to 13.5 months. So that's that's already beyond, and that's an estimate, they assure us. And if everybody does the math, that does mean their their modest estimate is already going past next year's presidential general election. That's right. And it varies from location to location. Yes. But in the national range, it's anywhere from 10 months to three years nationally. So there are some places even worse than California. Uh, But California and that Los Angeles office that you mentioned are are certainly well beyond that six months. In terms of the raw number of applications that are in that backlog, it's more than 700,000 nationally. And in California, it's over 137,000, which at the level of a state office is the highest number of applications that are backlogged in the country. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Professor Ming Chen, a member of the Colorado State Advisory Committee for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights that produced the report entitled Citizenship Delayed, Civil Rights and Voting Rights Implications of the Backlog in Citizenship and Naturalization Applications. So let's talk then about the naturalization process. It begins, does it not, with completing. It's a very lengthy form, the N-400. And I was just asking someone I knew about a half an hour ago prior to recording, you know, and she doesn't remember it being 20, uh, 22 pages back in 2004. So it's it's become a lengthier and lengthier. So you can talk about from the N-400 to the oath, there are so many steps along the way where barriers aren't coming up but nobody can really quite see that barrier either coming or know how it's being resolved once the step has been taken post-completing the N-400. Can you talk to that? Like, for instance, the requirements of evidence, which is really a burden for applicants. Sure. So the process that you're describing, um, and I think the key word is barriers, because what we've seen over the last several years 
is an intensification in the hoops that somebody has to jump through, uh, beginning with when they file that N-400. Um, as you mentioned, the form itself is now over 20 pages long, um, and so it does require a lot of information, detailed information about, for example, um, dates of travel. Every trip that you've taken outside the country for at least the last five years, the length of each of those trips, the departure date and the return date. Exactly. Um, and that for five years, I challenge my privileged, naturally um, born compatriots here to, to recall, to be able to document Every And it has to be exactly when you left and exactly returned into the country. And it's it, it can, for certain travel patterns, can be a very cumbersome record to keep together. And it has to match what the feds have on their records. Right. And that latter point, I mean, these are, in, you know, to be clear, these are requirements that are set by statute. And the requirements themselves have not changed that much. But what has changed is the rigor. Um, how scrupulous the USCIS is in processing these applications. So that in the past, if, for example, you got one of those travel dates off by a week, um, or if you said that you went to Mexico for 10 days and it was 12, that might be the kind of thing that you'd be given an opportunity to correct. But one of the things that has changed is that even the smallest errors can lead to significant delay or even denial of an application. And part of the reason is that there is internal policy guidance changes that say that the USCIS will no longer defer to the decisions that were made at an earlier stage, such as when you got a green card. Oh, no, you that's very key. That's a very key thing, because some some things were what the naturalization applicant assumed were resolved. And you're here to say it is the green card issuance process is now being Re at second guest at, at some instances. That's right. So there are community advocates who refer to this now as a double screening process because for the general applicant, not even someone who is flagged as a security risk, they're essentially being screened at every stage. They're being screened for their first visa, they're being screened for their green card, and now they're being screened again when they're at the stage of naturalization. For military non-citizens, they're being screened for entry into the military as well as being screened again for naturalization. So on the one hand, it's perhaps not surprising that it takes longer to process these applications. But on the other hand, it does mean that potentially there are more tripwires um, because every time a decision is made, it goes over the ground that um, had previously been settled and it introduces the possibility of even the most minor technical inconsistencies. There is something else I want to introduce. Yes. You seem to pick up on the significance right away of not deferring to prior judgments. Another change that has people feeling uh, potentially more uncertain about putting their applications in is that the USCIS is now routinely issuing not only requests for more evidence, but also what's called an NTA, notices to appear in immigration court, if they detect what they b believe to be an inconsistency. So what that means is that USCIS, again, instead of going back to the applicant and giving them a, an opportunity to cure any possible problems or confusions, they are instead initiating an enforcement process, even though traditionally they have been the ones who are primarily in charge of adjudicating and approving benefits. So, and the applicant may not know that this is 
this will ca- call it a case being built up against them that they they don't know yet that there will be a notice to appear coming there's that concern that the resources necessary to process this notice may be a considerable expense and then how much time afterward i mean there's so much uncertainty there's so much expense it's a huge burden for a household to deal with maybe there's several of them that are getting a process which is the case oftentimes i've noticed in orange county yeah i think there are definitely costs and the report talks most concretely about the costs in terms of time energy, money, um, because an N-400 is not typically designed to require an attorney's help. It's the kind of thing that an immigrant could possibly fill out um, on their own or possibly with the assistance of volunteers. I know that you've mentioned um, that you've helped out at some of these citizenship workshops, and I have, and I take my students to do that on a monthly basis. None of that requires attorney assistance, but with the stakes being as high as they are, increasingly you're seeing people feel like they have to hire an attorney before they feel safe submitting their application. So there are time, money, and effort costs. But I also want to highlight that there are costs in terms of the uncertainty and the worry that people feel, because similar to other areas of immigration law, such as um, the DREAMers with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, when people put an application in for an immigration benefit, they are turning a lot of highly sensitive information about themselves over to the U.S. government. And again, in most cases, these applicants are green card holders who have nothing to worry about. But if they know that that pipeline between USCIS and um, ICE on the enforcement side um, is becoming shorter and shorter, they're at least raising the possibility of a risk um, that they could end up in enforcement proceedings when they thought quite the contrary, that they were about to swear the oath of citizenship. So, Ming, when you mentioned earlier about military applicants, and I'm, I was frankly stunned in your report after you, you explain that previously the military applicants through the Department of Defense had an expedited procedure, but they've become very complex now. So it's without really any kind of technical assistance from within the military, there's this sort of arcane way of getting this sort of long leadership sign-off for them. And you plot how precipitously the naturalization processing has dropped with military applicants. And I just, I, I take pause with that because we know that a lot of variously documented individuals signed on. They were recruited by the military because there was a path to citizenship. So were you surprised to, or you saw those complications opening up, but did, were you surprised by the, the drop-off of their processing rates? Yes, I think the finding that the report makes about non-citizens who serve in the military is, is very important. And if I could give it more pages in the report, I would have. I'm glad that you noticed it um, because I think it, on the one hand, is a secondary finding in the report because the report focuses mostly on the general population right. of eligible citizens. But for the military applicants, for that subgroup, the numbers are worse on every front. That the sheer length of wait time is now worse than it is for civilians, despite the clear intention of Congress to make the process for military applicants faster than for civilians. Um, In addition to the wait being longer, the denial rates are actually higher now. So in the general population, the denial rate tends to be 
around 10%, which is to say about 90% of applications do go through. Okay. There hasn't been a change, even though those applications have needed to wait longer for the general population. But for the military applications, there actually has been a change, and more of those applications are being denied. And then the third facet of that darkening portrait for the military non-citizens is the one that you mentioned, that more of the military ap- applicants are, are not even filing. Um, and I think that is probably a, a combination of hoops being so high that they simply can't clear them and people feeling generally discouraged about the process. Another feature now moving to the general public, the pool of applicants, is that the federal government has changed the nomenclature from customer to applicant. Talk about what consequences that label has in the, we'll call it the experience, it sounds like a private sector framing, but what happens when we move from a customer to an applicant label? Yeah, so let me give you just a little bit of history in terms of the significance of those language choices. Shortly after 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security was created to replace what had previously been the INS, right, the Immigration and Naturalization Service. And one of the key features of that change was to separate the process of serving immigration benefits into the USCIS and to keep apart from that the enforcement functions that might lead someone to deportation proceedings, and those are housed in ICE. And so it was quite intentional in the design of things that the USCIS be focused on serving its customers and to be seeing their purpose as a service-oriented one. Despite that being the history and the purpose of creating the USCIS, what we have seen, and this began under Francis Cisna, who was uh, previously worked in the Obama administration, but became the head of the USCIS under President Trump. It was under him that there was a literal rewriting of the USCIS mission statement um, on the website. Um, and in fact, if you are able to use one of those time turners, um, there's, there's a piece of technology that can let you see on a website the language that used to be there before the text was updated. You can see the change in that language. You can also, of course, go to a library and look at the older version of the USCIS mission statement and policy guidance and what they have now. Um, But some people might say that changing from this idea of being a customer to simply being an applicant in the process is semantics. Um, But I do think it's pretty rich in symbolism because what it does is that it changes the emphasis of the agency. Um, The agency is saying that it sees as its primary audience, not the immigrants, but the American people. And in particular, Um, what it has done is to shift the balance from serving immigrants to worrying more about whether or not costs are coming to the American public. So while we consider some of the organizational aspects since 2017, the beginning of the year, the competition, I, I always have to think of like there's you know, there's a finite amount of resources available to the Department of Homeland Security that administers this over, you know, overall. So the example in the report cites that, and I'm quoting the report, programs that divert resources from benefit adjudications to fraud detection should be carefully studied with results made publicly available, end of quote. So what are, what, what do you bring to that? Sure. So One common response to the finding that there is a backlog in the government is that it's not news, right? That it is not news to say that the government is under-resourced and that an agency is not fully delivering on its mission. 
But I think that it's really important to recognize that while that might be a common story for many agencies, that's not what's going on with DHS, and that's not what's going on with USCIS. Um, it's true that USCIS, the agency within the Department of Homeland Security that handles these naturalization applications, is smaller than ICE or Customs and Border Patrol. Uh, but at the same time, the amount of money given to USCIS and to the department as a whole has actually gone up under the Trump administration. Yes. Okay. And so what that says to me is that it makes it even more surprising that there would be a backlog because the agency actually has more resources to expend. And so what the report is pointing out in the line that you cited is that that money is going somewhere else. That money is not necessarily being used primarily to process the benefits to move people along to naturalization. At least some of that money is being used for things like the fraud detection service. And in Colorado, I know that there's been increased hiring specifically for the fraud unit within USCIS. So they had 12 new hires last year, and I believe eight of them were in the fraud detection unit of the USCIS, as opposed to going to the front lines of processing these applications. Now, USCIS, who participated in the public hearing and described those numbers to us, would defend that move um, as saying that properly adjudicating an application requires looking to see if there is fraud or if there's anything else that makes the person ineligible for naturalization. And that is a fair point. Mm. Adjudication doesn't always mean a green light, although I did say that in 90% of cases, the applications do go through. But I think what is even more troubling is that there are other operations that we're hearing about in the newspaper that we heard about right. in the hearing from immigration attorneys, such as a denaturalization task force. And the question is, who's paying for that? Um, a lot of people don't realize that the USCIS funding doesn't primarily come from congressional appropriations. That's to say it's not the usual budget process. 95% of the funding for that agency comes from the application fee. The fees. So, it's, so yeah. it's fee-based. So if people are paying for their application to be filed and that money is being diverted to fraud detection, denaturalization, and other national security operations, I think that potentially raises concerns about whether that money is being misused. So we've, I, I guess I could backstep a little bit that uh, when we're talking about the barriers and we're talking about the fees that are paying for this processing that are getting diverted to other parts of the Department of Homeland Security. So the, the, in the processing are the fee waivers and language exceptions. And there is a part of the trip up in the processing that can be, again, a discouraging factor in there. So it's only going one way in those complications. Well, so upon what does the report base the claim that the backlog does not have an impact on local or national elections? I was a little puzzled by that because I'm looking at tight margins in 2016 and maybe a few around in last year's 2018 general election. How, how do you know that it may, that doesn't have an impact? Well, I think it would be a little bit of an overstatement to say it doesn't have an impact at all. I think it's important for me to underscore that in the report, what the U.S. Commission of Civil Rights is most concerned about is voting rights and civil rights of individuals. And so certainly it's having an impact on individual rights to vote, right? And voting right. is an individual right, whether or not it flips an election. So I think that's first really important to establish. Well, and one uh, other and thing too, Ming, is, and it's sort of, there's this culture you create by your beginning to vote, you become a habitual voter once you start voting. You could. That's right. I think that 
one of the ways to view naturalization is that it is a gateway to civic engagement. Yes. Right. It's one of the most important markers of civic engagement, and then it unlocks formal voting um, and other forms of ongoing civic engagement. So I think it's first important to, to recognize that even if election outcomes don't change, at an individual level, it is highly consequential if somebody is not able to gain the right to citizenship and therefore the right to vote. But at the aggregate level, when you talk about flipping the election results, um, the report is citing studies by uh, Robert Cruz, who's a political scientist here at Metro State in Denver, Colorado. So within the state of Colorado, he's run models to show, given the likelihood that a newly naturalized citizen will vote, tends to be lower than the voting rate in the general population, which you know is only about 50%. Uh, but given that that rate tends to be even lower for newly naturalized citizens, and then given specific demographic attributes and partisan attributes that make up the state of Colorado, he finds that at that level, he doesn't see that election outcomes in 2016 would have changed. That's a, that's a statistical result that he okay. Um, I haven't run a counter study myself, but I would say that I'd be very curious to know in places like Orange County, California, if you might find a different result in running a similar model. Because Orange County is the kind of place that has a lot of immigrants, many of whom may be eligible to naturalize, um, a highly mobilized community where you might have better than the usual trend for newly naturalized voters, and of course, the propensity to actually flip outcomes, right? I mean, it's as I understand it, following the news from my hometown, yes. um, one of the big stories of the last election was that Orange County went blue. Um, and I'll oh. say that when I, when I lived in Irvine in the 1990s, Orange County was not considered a contestable district. You know, so the fact that you can have, in some places, a significant enough demographic change that it can actually change outcomes suggests to me that there might be the aggregate level impact as well. So but this, I don't want to lose in there, again, that the, even without that, that the individual right matters. And that's something that, yeah, I'm going to be, I know exactly people right here locally, and then it gives us a chance to acknowledge the great work that USC's Manuel Pastor, professor of American Studies and Ethnicity, in his Rock the Vote project, and he breaks down using his public use microdata area stats, and we can wave the cursor over sections of cities there. I guess the the public use microdata areas are something, they're not quite a census tract. Uh, uh, they're larger than that. They're be somewhere between the census tract and the congressional district size. And we can, it breaks down the ethnicities and voting trends and percentages and all over uh, of the naturalization rates in municipalities. So we would be able to get an, an idea about how much has changed. And, and Orange County is getting more engaged. So those margins of the newly naturalized citizens could be a really interesting dynamic to be a, a greater force to be reckoned with in our electoral process for sure. Right. So the remedies, we're, we've been circling around them, but let's say, I don't know, you, you're dealing with, a not, you have to acknowledge the, the constraints and the budget. So I can't ask you the way I'd like to ask uh, uh, like nonprofits, like you had all the money you wanted, what would you do next? You, you don't, we can't think like that with the federal agency. So 
what remedies do we have? I mean, maybe it's in terms of the really very strategic advocacy, but individuals who are in the process of naturalizing, we talked about them being caught in the backlog. What kinds of legal recourse? What kinds of administrative transparency? What kinds that you, you mentioned the mandamus or the ombuds actions? What do you think is the best bet here to improve this naturalization process and the backlog it has now? Well, I think there are both political avenues and legal avenues that are available. I mean, just to to cover one that you mentioned specifically, the writ of mandamus, there is a provision in the same statute that describes how this naturalization process is supposed to work that explains that an individual whose application is backlogged, which again, by statutory definition means that it's been more than the six months that Congress deems reasonable for processing this application, that individual can file for federal jurisdiction and then a writ of mandamus. Um, to compel the agency to make a decision on its application. That's not the same as appealing, right? This is no, no. the application along um, to be able to get to an outcome. Um, and in talking with the immigration attorneys at the hearing, um, and also in my own experiences, working with some of these immigration attorneys, that avenue can actually be quite effective. Um, the problem is that most people don't file for a writ of mandamus because it is expensive to file in federal court. As we mentioned, many people who have n 400 um, and the hopper don't have attorneys in the first place, and that's something, the writ of mandamus is not something that they can It requires control. an attorney. Right. It requires an attorney. It requires all the federal filing fees. Um, How it much could it cost much higher. to open up one? Um, you know, it would depend on the attorney's filing fees, um, the attorney's hourly rate, as well as the court's finding fees. Okay. Um, but, I, but I would just say that most people don't even think to do it, um, even though it could be quite effective. What that leaves us with instead is the political avenues. Um, and I think those are the kinds of ones, those are the kinds of avenues that require um, this kind of public attention, um, people understanding, people in particular, people who can vote, understanding um, the significance of this issue in calling city officials, uh, mayors, state officials, and then certainly representatives in Congress to alert them to the importance of this problem. There's a group called the National Partnership for New Americans, who I have to give a lot of credit to because they've really made um, a a national campaign out of addressing this issue of backlogs. The campaign is called Taking Down the Second Wall. And some of what they've focused on has been uh, getting mayors of cities across the country to sign letters um, expressing concern about this issue. They have filed FOIA actions um, to increase the transparency around what these numbers are and what kinds of policies might be contributing to them. And that litigation has been uh, essentially stonewalled. Um, I was on a conference call um, in my personal capacity with NPNA just a week ago, um, and they mentioned that the FOIA litigation had, had reached the stage where the government was hoping to withhold information that was being requested until after the 2020 election. Wow. And so that's decided just... that, that was the judge decided that that was improper and that, in fact, they would need to start producing information in batches beginning November of 2019. So it's kind of a cruel irony that that's another backlog going on, the FOIA backlog. Sure. I mean, trying to draw attention to this issue is not easy. And so I commend you for making this the subject of a program. Um, you know, a backlog could be seen as something that is very technical and the process of naturalization could be very opaque. But I think what matters is to understand the stakes that are in place 
um, which is to say that this is holding back eligible voters, you know, eligible citizens and eligible voters um, from doing what you would think that everyone would want to have happen, which is for them to become more civically engaged, um, to renew democracy. Um, and so, you know, I, I think shining attention on that ought to get the gears of democracy moving, you know, and ought to put pressure on Congress, for example, to think about um, having a targeted stream of, of budget appropriations. As I said, 95% of funds come through those filing fees, which means that to throw more money at the agency could simply mean that you're increasing the user fees, and that obviously can backfire in terms of right. motivating immigrants to naturalize. But what happened 10 years ago, I guess more than 10 years ago now in 2004, um, is that when the former INS faced similar backlogs, Congress created a special appropriation just for the purpose of reducing the backlog. And it worked. They were able to bring the backlog down to zero. And, and so that's the point where we've been rebuilding since 2004. So, you know, that's a political course um, that had to be kicked off by public pressure. Um, Congress has held one hearing on the backlog in August of 2019. Okay. Um, as far as I know, there's been no further action since then. It was Zoe Lofgren who is um, from California and is the head of a House Judiciary Subcommittee um, that deals with citizenship and border issues. Um, and so she all oversaw that hearing in August, which many people um, in the immigration community were quite hopeful about. Um, but so far, it hasn't led to further action. So here's uh, here's my sort of wrap-up. It's a request or suggestion before we close. And so in your next... National Partnership for New Americans conference call that somebody gets an assignment to reach out to the next presidential debate media team to put this question before presidential candidates. Yeah, I think that, you know, there needs to be more and more attention. And like I said, you would think that the presidential candidates ought to see uh, at the level of self-interest and also national interest. Um, how important it would be to make sure that everybody who is eligible to vote is actually in a position to do so by next. You know, and it gets, it would give them an opportunity to be sort of in the moment. There's, I think there's some cognitive dissonance people are experiencing between uh, some debates and, you know, things that are sort of blowing up and this continues to unfold. Well, I hope somebody there in your conference call can find a way, work the way up. But it's on our end to work with municipal leaders to, to raise the profile. Well, that's all the time we have. Ming Chen, you didn't have this time. Thank you for being so generous today. Well, thank you for bringing some attention to this issue. Like I said, I'm, I'm happy to be on the air, and I do hope that this issue continues to pique people's interest. Well, thank you. My guest was Professor Ming Chen, a member of the Colorado State Advisor Committee for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights that produced the report entitled Citizenship Delayed, Civil Rights and Voting Rights Implications of the Backlog in Citizenship and Naturalization Applications. And she is professor specializing in immigration and citizenship at the University of Colorado Boulder Law School. Ming Chen has a book forthcoming with Stanford Press called Pursuing Citizenship in the Enforcement Era. It should be out on May 2020. 
She's planning to be at the UCI Law School, possibly next March, to talk about her book. We'll return after a short station break with Richard Alexander for some inside scoop on that electronic infrastructure that could be delivering better to our Northern California and, let's face it, all the California folks. Be right back. J'étais tranquille, j'étais peinard Accoudé au comptoir, le type est entré dans le bar A commandé un café noir Puis il m'a tapé sur l'épaule Et m'a regardé d'un air drôle D'un blouson mecton, les pabidons Welcome back to the show It's fire season 2019 Here in the West California for sure Let us take an inventory of our current expectations Steady flow of electrical current internet connectivity, including operative websites, and climate change, of course, is on the move steadily, if not unpredictably. My guest to ponder this very setting is electrical systems expert Richard Alexander. Richard was the sole proprietor of Alexander Publications, the premier supplier of technical books, training manuals, and videos for workers at electric utilities with focus on transmission, distribution, substations and metering, everything except generation. Richard founded the Alexander Publications headquartered in Newport Beach in 1995. He's the author of 20 books, edited many more, and he's got, he's actually in the transition of uh, writing some personal nonfiction. Prior to founding his company, Richard was a consultant to electric utilities and others. He completed his Bachelor's of Science degree in electrical engineering at Yale and an MBA from Harvard, and he served in the U.S. Navy. He's come to us from Costa Mesa, and he appeared several years ago on my Ask a Voter election show. Welcome back, Richard Alexander, to Ask a Leader. Glad to be here, Claudia. Okay, well, just as the season, the fire season was mm. beginning, and Pacific Gas and Electric sent out the memo that they would be cutting power to their customers around Northern California, what came over your mind as that scenario was beginning to unfold? Well, I think that was sort of the last-ditch stand. Uh, it's, it's a question of which is the least awful thing to do. And they were obviously concerned about causing more fires, and they didn't want that to happen. And the only way to, that they could stop it was to cut the power, which is kind of a ham-handed solution. But I think it's the only option that they could they could, could think of at the time. Well, now they're, um, you know, they, what, 4,500 workers out there now trying to get ready, starting, the, well, they were 4,500. Hundred workers working on last week, and there's a, an anticipation of t uh, ten years ahead of this. So, what? Let's talk about your experience and your sort of what's the culture, what's the sort of mindset of this monopoly utility company, Pacific Gas and Electric. Talk about your history with them and their responsibilities and the status among other providers in your estimation and your experience. Well, yes, they are a monopoly. Actually, all utilities are monopoly. There's there's 2,900 of them across the country that each have their own delivery area, uh, which is exclusive to that one utility. And uh, PG&E is uh, a very large one. They're the second largest in the country. Duke is the largest. Close behind it is Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric. So 
right in our state, we have uh, three of the top five utilities in terms of area covered and population served. And, you know, with, with size uh, comes power. Uh, pardon the pun there. So to speak. <laughs> we'll pardon that one pun. Yeah, it's so, and, uh, it's so dreadful. And all of these California utilities, including PG&E, uh, service areas that are remote, so their wires go through forests and moderately, you know, lightly inhabited areas. And those areas have trees that and vegetation that grows. And it's their responsibility to... Uh, trim it back so that the, the wires that they deliver power through uh, doesn't touch any of them or doesn't get close to them so that fires start. And there's also the problem of equipment that can catch fire substations primarily. And their responsibility is to keep vegetation away from those locations so that the uh, fire, if it occurs, is contained within the substation. Uh, also, those transformers leak oil, so they have to have a basin underneath it to catch the oil so it doesn't spill out offside their property. Oh, my gosh. Um, So, Richard, can you, I mean, there's the past and there's the present and there's the future sorts of contingency planning. It's on PG&E to be on top of that. That's like the the old, the terrible punchline about there's, there's, you were supposed to do one thing, you know, I mean, it's to maintain the infrastructure. So what, I mean, you talked about it being a ham-handed approach this month, but what would, should PG&E have been doing over these years? Well, there's, there's, there's two problems that PG&E has, actually all utilities. One is vegetation management, and the answer to your question is they just need to religiously trim back trees. Spend the money. Spend the money, and almost no utilities do that themselves. It's, it's typically a, okay. like a contracted-out job, and it's done by people who specialize in that work because it's a special. you need special equipment, you need special training, you need special tools to do it, and the, Utilities uh, generally sub- subcontract that out, so they need to you know, find good contractors who do that and pay them to do it. They work on the right away that the utility instructs them to, uh, but the actual work is typically done by by contractors, and um, it's an expense which is postponable uh, because uh, you know if there's a tree near a wire and the wire doesn't touch it or doesn't get close to it, you save the money by not trimming that that tree back, but. If something bad happens, then something bad happens. So it's a it's a calculation that I think all utilities make, including PG&E, as to what to trim and where. What where are the biggest risks? Because they they don't they don't want the fires, they don't want the publicity, they don't want the lawsuits. But sometimes they make the wrong calculation. Uh, sometimes they just you know maybe don't do enough. Right now we're in a, in a situation in the in the country with with climate change that things are getting hotter. Air conditioning is increasing. That means that the wires themselves are hotter. Those transmission wires are too hot to touch. So that if they come in contact with a, a dry branch, there's going to be a fire. So it's a postponable expenses like a lot of businesses faces. And if you cut it too close, then you're going to have a big problem on your hands. But, Richard, they they were on notice, though, that there, there, is, there are drought conditions. There's increasingly intensive, expansive fires, wildfires. I mean, they they had all this data to to be. Uh, I don't want to even get to the word proactive, but they could have seen this coming years ago. All I can say is you're right, Claudia. 
Oh, for those of you that have just joined, you're listening to Ask a Leader, and my guest is Richard Alexander, electrical engineer and publisher of Technical Manuals. He's back from another trade show just this last week, and I'm, it was just making me wonder, when you're talking to linemen that come to, to your trade show booth and mm-hmm. people that you're interacting with over those meetings, does this come up? Do people talk about that? Not much, because... Uh, first of all, it's, it's it's a level of management that they're not participating in. And uh, secondly, that uh, most of the utilities linemen don't do this kind of work. They never they never have that responsibility. Okay. Okay. They have other. They have, for example, you mentioned the trade show that I was at. There right. were about a hundred linemen who were who were, who were there from Eversource, which is back in New England. And they were all called back by their utility because of the uh, the big cyclone that hit New England. Okay. They were there to compete in an event, which they really wanted to do, but the utility says, "Come on home because we got poles and wires to fix." So, uh, so they all left. So, yeah, these uh, weather events happen, and the utilities react best they can, but often they're just outmanned by by the events. And and speaking of that right now in uh, in, in California, the the need for uh, vegetation management exceeds the uh, a number, the amount of manpower that all these contractors together have. So there's work that is known to be done that isn't being done because there's nobody available to do it. They're already busy. Would this be subcontracted to perhaps the kind of uh, different kinds of documented workers that are also not showing up in the ag sector? Is this like, is it showing up in this area too? I don't think so. It takes, uh, this is not an unskilled job. It's, uh, you're working at heights, you're working next to energized lines. You got to really know what you're doing. And these uh, vegetation management people are well trained, and they get they wear special clothing and equipment. They have special okay. tools. So okay. The ones that I've I've seen are they have the same personality as linemen, but yes. they're just doing a different kind of job. Well, this whole interview arrangement came when someone casually asked me about the cost of putting electrical lines underground. Mm-hmm. What kinds of incentives? create that upgrade? Well, underground of power lines, is it's primarily driven by aesthetics. People don't like to see those wires. But uh, if it's underground, you know, the, the, a tree can't fall on it. Uh, so it's... Safer. Well, it, it, it's safer and it's more immune from an interruption. Uh, it's also much more expensive to, to repair when there is a problem because you've got to dig it up. A lot of the undergrounding that's, that's occurring, like in my neighborhood, uh, is done because of aesthetics. It costs between 10 and 20 times as much to install an underground cable as a, an underground wire as an overhead wow. wire. And it gets uh, almost impossible with, uh, these, with uh, high-voltage transmission lines because the high, if you, these uh, transmission towers you see, the, the conductors are separated by a wide spacing of air. That provides the insulation. Yes, that that was an interesting detail, and that makes it much more unfeasible for an underground kind of yeah. a line. Yes, if you, if you take that voltage and put it underground, you're, you're talking about a cable that's like 10 inches in diameter and very hard to handle, very expensive to make. So transmission lines probably are going to always stay overhead, but those are the ones that you see on towers uh, that run through rural areas. 
Well, so to shift from that kind of a site-specific aspect, I'd like to wind the interview down with the institutional arrangement. Governor Newsom mm-hmm. just appointed Maribel Batcher to head up the California Public Utility Commission. Mm-hmm. She's getting a lot of accolades for how she's managed some, some very large bureaucracies under both GOP and Democratic administrations. Mm-hmm. What must she do to be effective at this juncture? Well... Yeah, the PUC in California and in, in other states is is the boss of the utilities. Uh, uh, they're they're primarily a rate setting uh, entity, and they also have the the ability to enforce and to to somewhat discipline. Um, so they're a very loud voice with only certain tools to enforce. And one of the arguments that occurs between the utility and the PUC has to do with rate setting, and. Uh, the utilities are are assured to make some money, or supposed to. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be around, and we want them to be around. And and most of the rates that we pay are based on the the sum, the, the total value of all the assets installed. Tree trimming is an expense, so that's kind of in the gray area as to whether that affects the rate or not. But the, the utility is probably going to go to her and say, "Well, yeah, you're right. We need to trim more trees, and therefore we need to raise the rates." And she'll say, "Oh, I don't like that because my customers don't like that." And the utility will say, the customer is the only people that pay, and if you want me to do this, somebody's got to pay for it, and that's them. Oh, my gosh, it's institutional chicken, Richard. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I wish we had more time to yeah. break this up. We've got a season, at, I guess, tomorrow afternoon is when the utility companies are uh, poised to make a decision mm-hmm. for this week's fires that are coming. So yeah. uh, we'll have to hold tight and see how that goes. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for being on Ask a Leader today. Thanks for asking me, Claudia. Thank you. My guest was Richard Alexander. He's electrical engineer and with a publisher with all these terrific insights about the electrical infrastructure. I'm going to just quickly announce a California Assemblywoman, Cadi Petri Norris, is going to continue holding town hall meetings in Irvine to, on the 24th, Thursday, and in Saturday, October 26th, on uh, tomorrow evening, October 23rd, at the Greenpeace local chapter, we'll host a zero-waste potluck at... 2183 Fairview Road, number 222 in Costa Mesa, and bring your favorite vegan dish. And lastly, the Segerstrom Center for the Arts and the VSA of the Orange County are proud to present the second annual All Ability Celebration, October 26th. That's also Saturday. Performances and information booths of interest to all of us. That's my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Terry Tempest Williams with her exceptional read erosion, the undoing of things. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.